Producing Crime features conversations with influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. In over 20 years working undercover with the FBI, Scott Payne infiltrated the outlaw motorcycle gang, got naturalized into the Ku Klux Klan, and drank goat's blood initiating into the white supremacist neo-Nazis known as the base, all as part of his cover. We talk about his work and the impact it had on him. Welcome to Reducing Crime. I'm your host, Jerry Ratcliffe. Okay, I'll just be up front that you're in for a bit of a treat with this episode. My guest, Scott Payne, started his law enforcement career in the Greenville, South Carolina County Sheriff's Office, but after five years, he moved on to join the FBI. Over more than 20 years, he served in their New York, San Antonio and Knoxville field offices. He's been an FBI SWAT team operator and a firearms and tactics instructor, but Scott's primary role has been as an undercover agent in numerous long-term operations. He's helped to infiltrate and bring down drug trafficking and alien smuggling organizations, gangs, public corruption cases, and domestic terrorists. His long-term undercover work for the Bureau saw him successfully infiltrate the outlaw motorcycle gang, the Ku Klux Klan, and the anti-Semitic white nationalist group known as The Base. A musician and singer, he's even performed Leonard Skinner songs at Klan rallies, all as part of his cover. He retired in 2021, which was handy because an article with photos of him in Rolling Stone magazine last year was one of the biggest stories of the year and has been nominated for a magazine Pulitzer. In a first for the Reducing Crime podcast, I sat down with Scott on stage at the opening plenary session of last year's Tennessee Association of Law Enforcement Analysts conference in Nashville. It's a great conference, and a big shout-out to the hundreds of people who came to that opening session and to the conference organiser who made it happen, the inestimable David Gordon. As you join us, I'm just explaining to the conference crowd that this is my first time doing it in front of an audience. And indeed, it takes me less than a minute for my brain and my mouth to become quite disconnected. Never done this before, by the way. Never done it in front of a big crowd of people. I'm following the Arnold Bax rule. And Arnold Bax said a man should try everything once except incest and folk dancing. So... <laughs> So with that in mind, we're going to start in here and just chat to my... So, Scott. Sir. You started in patrol in the Greenville County Sheriff's Office in South Carolina. Yes, sir. But you've also been an FBI SWAT team operator, an undercumber. Oh, I keep getting my mucking furs waddle. This, ladies and gentlemen, if you ever host a podcast, is why you edit. Yeah. You've also been an undercover firearms defensive tactics instructor, an active shooting instructor. You've led investigations into drug trafficking organizations, murder for hire, public corruption, and white supremacist groups. You've even had a fucking article about you in Rolling Stone magazine. So I think it's fair to say you're a bit of a crazy bastard, aren't you? Slightly. So with all that training, what I learned about you is that you are really crap at sacrificing goats. It wasn't me that was crap you edited, it was the white supremacists. Yeah. When you joined the uh, Greenville County Sheriff's Office, did you think, you know what, in about 10 years' time, I'm going to help some white supremacist out sacrifice a goat in the middle of the woods? I'll tell you real quick what I said. I had a saying, and I said, you know, I've been doing undercover work since 1996, you know, starting at street level narcotics and working my way on and off, still working undercover, and that was like 2019, I think. I said, I have never had to burn American flags. I have never had to burn Bibles, and I damn sure never was with a group of people that 
kidnapped a goat and sacrificed it at a pagan ritual and drank its blood. And I said, I did all that in three days with those guys. And that was like middle of the week too. I wasn't even enjoying the weekend. Yeah, you know? Just, you know. It's like a school night really, wasn't it? It was weird. It's not like hunting. I mean, I can go hunting. It was just, it was just weird. So, well, I mean, what did you learn from that experience other than the fact that some of them are basically clusterfucks? That I still used my tactical uh, skills and told the kid with the gun to look at what he was shooting at. <laughs> so he closed his eyes. He closed his eyes, turned away. And we're all in a circle and I'm holding the goat. So I said, my man, <laughs> look at what you're shooting at. And then they, uh, you know, started chopping heads and stuff and passed the blood around in a big glass of something. It wasn't like a goblet or anything, but by the time it got to me, it was already clotting. So it was like all chunky. Yeah, because before that, it was fine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, and see, as an undercover coordinator, I'm, I'm, in my mind, I'm going through all the administrative minutia of the FBI. I'm like, do I need to get approval to drink this blood right now? I'm not really sure. There's got to be a paperwork trail for that, right? Yeah, yeah, right. So when it got to me, I was like, well, man, I'm not turning that up. But I did stick my fingers in it and suck the blood off my finger. So don't judge me. <laughs> I didn't want to kill it. <laughs> when you're looking at this level of incompetence, should we be worried about these guys or just pity them? So that's the big question, especially in domestic terrorism. I mean, we've got our First Amendment right. You can go out here and say, I want all blacks to die. I hate Jews. I want everybody to die. So you can be in these chat rooms with a thousand people spewing all kinds of hate and all kinds of memes, but that's not against the law. But we have to be there and observe and try, hopefully people come forward, see something, say something, because which one of those jack wagons is going to step forward and go to the next level to do something harmful? I was reading that the founder of the site intelligence group was quoted as saying, there's one and a half million guys online plotting murder. With one and a half million people out there potentially plotting murder, how do we sort the wheat from the chaff? Well, you just got to stay vigilant. I mean, I can tell you this. I mean, the FBI does it. We have certified online covert employees. In other words, you're not going to do what I do. You're not certified to go face to face, but you don't even have to be an agent. You can be part of our professional staff and get certified as an online covert employee. And you might work under my undercover platform and we've got you out there and you're just building your bona fides. You know, and the good thing about online is it's a lot like playing video games. If you get kicked out, you can respawn right away with a new identity, you know? Um, and you're looking for the crazies. You're looking for something. And then, and we get people calling us saying, hey, we got this guy, gal, can you go in there and target them? And I mean, listen, these kids are fueled with hate. Like I was in one group for five months, a little over five months. But for the first five months, I went through every post. I would go to bed at midnight, whatever, wake up at seven in the morning, six in the morning. I'm 3,000 posts behind. And they're from all over the world. They're UK, everywhere. Everybody's just in there spewing hate. So. This is all your time in the Bureau. Was this always the plan? I mean, you started in patrol in Greenville County Sheriff's Office. You know, I always loved narcotics and undercover. And I got there decently quick. It's one of those things when I look back, I'm not sure that I knew exactly what I wanted to do. But when I look at me and my life and how I am as a person and dealing with people, yeah, it was there. And it's very much, you know, an option of going into staying in the street side of things or moving through the management ranks. You decided to stay at the front line for 20 years. I never went into management, not because, I mean, I thought I would because you want your high three to retire, but I love dealing with people. So as an agent, I'm running sources, I'm building cases. As an undercover, I'm working stuff. You know, I'm going out, I'm, I'm dealing with people. If I was a supervisor, 
the only people I'd be dealing with would be my squad and they'd probably get tired of me pretty quick. One of the biggest investigations you're involved in was the Aryan Nation. You and the JTTF in Knoxville for 2015 through 17. That was a long job. That was right through some really tumultuous times. What was going on in those groups? I mean, that's through Charlottesville and a whole bunch of stuff was going on. Well, there's a lot of people in here that helped me with that. It takes a village, right? It's a team. But when I went to JTTF, a buddy of mine had a case on an Aryan Nation guy. And uh, I mean, he's a felon. Everybody says he has a gun, but every car stop we ever did or every source that said they had one, he never had a gun. And we just, I started just going on the interviews with him and, and I'm a criminal enterprise guy. So that means it could be gangs, it could be the cartel. Uh, we lived on the border of Mexico for six and a half years, so I worked cartel a lot. So I started looking and it's like, look, these guys are peddling dope. Maybe not everybody's a white supremacist in the group, but there's plenty of TDOC here. TDOC? TDOC, Tennessee Department of Corrections. So they're a prison-based gang, kind of follow the Christian identity. But of course, when they get out on the street, they're all using, they're breaking their own bylaws, but they're cr creating havoc. And we were able to show that, um, you know, they were, furthering violent ideology and you know taking money from drug sales and holding a picnic to recruit some new white men and Aryan angel women and we worked on it about a year and a half and I partnered up with DEA out of Johnson City and we ended up with uh, 44 indictments which is not a bad lick. That's great. Yeah. You got inducted into the clan. I don't know if I should say congratulations. What's the appropriate term for getting yeah. inducted into the clan? I mean well, <laughs> well done. Did they, did they make you buy the robes? I was being fitted for the robes. I'd already passed my K-UNO test, and uh, I was being fitted for the robes when the source crapped the bed and the case agent literally crapped the bed, so the case just kind of washed away. Can you get that reimbursed? <laughs> no, but I'm sure I gotta give it back if it's on a property sheet. What is the actual process of getting in? How do, you, do they induct you in there? It's called a naturalization process. Isn't that what happens to aliens? Yes. Speaking as one. Yeah, right, yeah. Uh, yeah. To be transparent, I didn't really know what I was doing. <laughs> I was just there to play music for the white supremacy rally. I had to dive through my uh, repertoire of songs and take anything of color out, you know, because I can't sing Otis Redding at a clan, you know, or Hootie and the Blowfish, so uh, something like that. Is, that. is that what they teach you at undercover school? No, I learned that on my own. <laughs> yeah. So you, you go through a naturalization process. A blindfolded, a former chain, they walk you around, yell at you, spout some stuff from the Bible, spouts a lot of historical stuff. To me, and I'm not making light of it, and I don't get desensitized and get lax. I don't underestimate, but um, I was having to bite my lip on some of it because it was just like a scene out of Django or Harold and Kumar. It was, it was uh, listening to them try to read the verbiage and then mess up and go, well, wait a minute, man, let me turn my page back. All right, what I said was, and, but uh, yeah, I got knighted. And I was walking across the field and it's pitch black. I'm in the middle of a field in the middle of nowhere in the middle of Alabama. And I said, I think I just joined the damn clan. <laughs> yep, that's what happened. I just joined the clan. You, you've talked about being hanging out with the outlaws and the boogaloos and the anarchists and the neo-Nazis and the outlaw motorcycle gangs and the base. Is there one particular group that was really flagged up in your mind as Oh, we got to keep an eye on these guys. These, are, these guys are off the charts compared to everybody else. Man, there's several. I mean, not like big groups, you know, but it's the ones in those groups, right? I'd say the base. The base, you got, again, it's that young kid, been bullied, doesn't have a girlfriend. As a matter of fact, I said during the case, I'm like, if they could just get a girlfriend, I think they wouldn't, they wouldn't hate so much anymore. <laughs> or a partner, whatever. I don't care which way you go. I'm just like, just date somebody, you know? <laughs> Shit, let me take you to the mall. Let me show you how to talk to somebody, you know? 
go over there and get that girl's phone number. Don't care how you do it, let's just break the ice. You know, I thought it would relieve a lot of pressure, but yeah. But they're angry, they're angry. And I mean, you gotta look at the ideology. So you're in one National Socialist group and they're talking shit and it's memes and in this and Jewish this, but they're not talking about like satanic killing people. You get to the base, and I mean, man, that's a lot of hate. And they're shooting, and they're shooting good, at least the base. I told you all of my tactical stuff, I still teach. I'm not the best, but I'm definitely not too shabby. A 19-year-old kid led our firearms training in the base, and it was good. That kid could shoot. Adderall helped, but, you know. <laughs> so you've hung out with the Klan guys. So you've hung out with people who are burning Bibles and American flags. How do you keep Scott? After a while, I'm, I'm guessing a lot of these folk are starting to buy into these ideas because it's all they're exposed to, right? Mm -hmm. And here you are getting exposed to these ideas too. How do you keep that balance without going, You're, you know you guys are all batshit crazy, right? Or going the other way, which is starting to buy into it. How do you find that balance when you're trying to maintain uh, your personality in the game? So later, towards the end of my career, when I did the base, and I, the last year and a half of my career, I was doing a lot of the militia stuff just prior to January 6th and after. At that point in my life, we, we're a faith-based family. That's what keeps me grounded and keeps me real. I know who I am. Now, early on, some of the cases, yeah, it's tough. You know, you're hanging out with somebody for two years. I'm holding their baby on my lap, and I'm not at home and our youngest baby is the same age as that guy's baby, so they're doing the same things, and you're looking at them, and you're like, man, he loves Jack Daniels, I love Jack Daniels. He likes to fight, I like to fight. He likes to ride, I like to ride. He just broke a few laws, you know? And then meanwhile, your case team's treating you like trash. You know, you have a shoulder surgery, you get five messages from a case agent who knows you have a soldier surgery, and not asking you how you're doing, he's saying, you need to call me, you need to do this, you need to do this. I'm on a fentanyl patch, man, I can't even stand up to pee, you know? But I'm getting Nextel hits from the outlaws going, how you doing, brother? How's your shoulder? Yeah, it can affect you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you told me this last night. I really like your definition of what undercover work is. The bottom line is this. Undercover is you are forming relationships and you're betraying them. And you need to be able to do that and justify it in your mind so it doesn't have an adverse impact on your psychological or your psyche, your mind. Sometimes it's tough. Sometimes it's not hard at all. People burning Bibles and flags. I, I, I don't like you. But, but there's the, the two sides to it, right? Because those guys are obviously nuts, but you have to form a relationship with them. You either form relationships with people you don't give a damn about, that, but that's the hard part. It is. Or you form relationships with people you do care about, but then the betrayal part becomes challenging. Yes, it's tough. That's a good way to ask it, actually. Uh, I, I guess whiskey helped me, you know? <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> that's Sitting out there good. on that 100-acre farm with a bunch of white supremacists. And I'm talking, I'm not talking about the Klan. I'm talking about like fully kitted plate carriers, ARs sit up in their bedroom all night and hate, and they're on this all night, hating, hating. Yeah, it's tough. I, yeah, I just had to find some kind of common ground. Basically, I'll make myself laugh. That's what it is. I sit there and crack jokes. You picked up your phone then. How much is technology now just enabling all this kind of stuff? Oh, it's tons. You get your relatives that aren't used to the internet. <laughs> my, my stepdad, bless his heart, he's like, I know for a fact that this is what's happening. It's right here. And he shows me the website. I said, it's all fake, but it looks real now. My 91-year-old mother every now and again tries to FaceTime me and all I see is the top of her head. Yeah. <laughs> Find a six-year-old in there, like, you know, writing R code, yeah. Yeah, it's really bad because there's so many things you can dive into, especially on the dark web. Again, like 4chan, 8chan, I think there's a 12chan now. 
Telegram, Wire, you know, Riot, they're always trying to find something that they think isn't compromised. How do you avoid bringing this stuff home with you? Uh, it's tough, but it's tough for any law enforcement uh, officer or people that work it, especially if you're a uniform cop. It happened to me. You know, how often do you show up in uniform and everybody's like, man, it's so good to see you. It's so good. To, they're like, yeah. get the F out of my house. Yeah, I don't think it's ever been a time like that in law enforcement. No, It's not easy, especially for me, because I'm a workaholic. And there have been times in, in my, my wife's history where uh, not only did I wear myself out, I just wasn't putting in what I needed to to the family. But I'm always working. I'm, I get it honestly. And, uh, you know, I paid the price for it at one point. So You're bringing this home to Yes. Most of the time it's okay. When wasn't it? <laughs> She may have a different version. <laughs> I'm like, Sitting great, there going, right? it when was, was it okay? Cakes and pies, man. Cakes and pies. Come on, my favorite. Um, there were times, uh, you know, like the outlaw case, it was really tough because I was gone all the time. I was gone every two weeks. But then I'd come back home and I'm a case agent. And all of a sudden, one day, you're the most senior person, but you're not been in the bureau six years. You know, you're training people, you're running SWAT trainings, you're going out on kidnappings. And I think the biggest problems with, with us that we found is just when we weren't communicating because it's uh, the doubt creeps in and she may think I'm thinking something, but I'm not thinking it. And I may think she's thinking something and she's not, but we're not talking. Yeah, she's at home and you're out with a bunch of bikers in strip clubs. Uh, sorry, Thanks. I'm not helping here, am yeah. I? Not Thanks for <laughs> Thanks for bringing that back home, Doc. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we had some issues and we'd get in an argument. And I mean, nothing physical or anything, but it's still bad. I mean, you're doing particularly challenging work and you're away for extended periods of time. I, mean, I think for most street cops, you know, you do a shift, you might have to do some overtime. You might miss the odd event here and there. Right. But you're back most of the time. But you're away for weeks on end, mm -hmm. uncontactable for weeks on end. It's, there's got to be a strain. I know you've spoken to other people like Joe Pistone, who was the, the original uh, agent, yep. who was the source for the Donnie Brasco story, about having to deal with this, because he struggled with all of this too. Actually, Joe's a very good friend of mine, mentor. I still call him a mentor. He calls me kid. But you know, back then, they didn't have a safeguard assessment group. And in, in, in the FBI, if you're an active undercover, you mandatorily have to be psychologically assessed twice a year. And you passed? I'm just yeah, joking. Right. The file's thick. You know, one thing is for sure though, I'm pretty daggum consistent because I think I started getting assessed in 2001 and other than when I had a, you know, mental and physical crash in 2007, everything else is pretty the same. But Joe Pistone actually helped create that whole process because of everything that he had learned. So him and a, and a certified clinical psychologist who was an FBI agent created that program. You know, if you're going through some hairy stuff, they won't let you go back. Me and got into it. It was a 911 hang up. She didn't know that once you do that, the cops are coming no matter what. I said, they're coming. So, uh, you know, safeguard is notified and they say, uh, you can't go back undercover until you fly here to DC and get assist. Okay. I get stripped in the basement at gunpoint. They almost find a wire. You know, they get, did you get stripped in the basement? They almost found a wire on you. I said, yeah. They go, you can't go back. So I've been safeguarded like three times in three months. So that was with the motorcycle gang, the outlaws. Yes. You've been working inside their organization for some time. Mm -hmm. But then you go into their clubhouse one day and things are a bit different. Yeah, it was a two-year case. I'd been with them for a year and a half. And my backstory, for you those who don't know the undercover stuff, it's all about your legend. It's all about your backstory. And even when I'm training street-level narcotics, I'm like, look, 
at least have a good backstory because you never know if that person you're targeting ends up being a major target for a state agency or a fed agency and you may be the person we need to be that undercover but if you came in with a shitty story we're gonna have to go in cold with somebody else so my legend was based out of McAllen, Texas, because that's where I live. So as soon as they met me, I mean, first of all, it's in Massachusetts. With this accent in Boston, come on. As soon as I ordered the first drink, you know, where the F are you from? You know, and I'm like, all right, I'm getting noticed now. So I had to have a reason to be there. Um, as soon as they found out and I started bumping the outlaws, they knew I was on the border. They're like, man, can you bring some dope? Can you bring a kilo up? What do you mean by bumping? Uh, cold bump is what we call it. Basically, I'm going up cold. I don't know you, they've given me information about you, I know you go to this bar every Wednesday night, I'm just gonna be another patron in the bar and I'm gonna do a cold bump. I'm not gonna have a source introduce me, I'm just gonna use my skill set. So almost kind of bring them to you, not yes. you push yourself in on and them. And that's what I did on that case. Told a lot of jokes. It didn't take me long to have a crowd of people around me at a bar with this accent in Boston. And uh, they had good intel on a couple of outlaws that were, they, they needed a lot of attention. They loved being the center of attention. So they saw this bigger dude. I used to be bigger. Because yeah, you're like, what, 100 pounds soaking wet right now? Yeah, I know. Yeah. I know, right? <laughs> I'll show you some pictures later. Not dirty, though. Just me bigger. <laughs> and, uh, unless, of course, the conversation goes that way. I don't I'm, know. I'm, I'm a little bit disappointed. I know, right? Okay. All right. Just for you, Doc. I mean, 56 years I thought I've been heterosexual, but you can turn the chat's head, you know. <laughs> you never know. You never know. Yeah, so they start, they saw me. And they come over to me. They're like, hey, they're yelling across the bar. Hey, where the F are you from? So now I didn't even make the intro. They call me over. And that goes back to in the basement when they're stripping me at gunpoint. Because what happened was, is a year and a half, it takes a long time. You don't just come out and lay this out. There's breadcrumbs everywhere. But what they ended up figuring out, per my story, is that I was a high-ranking member of an international theft ring. We're not moving dope. We're moving stuff south. Four by four V8 vehicles and Harley-Davidson go for a nice penny stolen in Mexico. So that's how it started, doing insurance scams, and then they'd carjack somebody, and they'd be like, Tex, we need to get rid of this thing. And I'm like, okay. So now it's been a year and a half. Now we start laying out the story that, actually, I did used to be in the dope game, but I stopped because some of my people got popped, and heat was getting too close. But one of my guys that's down in the cartel called me. He needs some transportation assistance to get some dope into Canada. And my whole story was, is, I mean, why would a heavily Hispanic organization keep a gringo around? Well, the story was, is because I'm the guy that paid the dirty Border Patrol agent at the checkpoints in the port of entry. So we laid out the story that they wanted to take dope into Canada. And that gave the outlaws a chance to bump these cartel guys to start trying to buy keys off of them. So we did a drug protection. But because we upped the ante, the United States Attorney's Office wanted me to go to the clubhouse to get evidence of them discussing this drug protection for evidentiary purposes and search warrants and seizing the clubhouse. And uh, of course, I said, hell yeah, I'll do it. I mean, that's what we do, right? Scott Payne, bitch. I'm going in, right? <laughs> and I'd been in that clubhouse, I don't know how many times. There's one door I never went in. And that night, they took me in that door and walked me down to, it, I, you could say a basement. It was more like a cellar. I couldn't even stand up straight. I could probably touch the walls on both sides. Were your spidey senses tingling? Yeah, it was a no shit moment. They told me to come, and I get there, and they're still having church, which is their weekly meeting where they discuss business and stuff and pay their dues. And Joe Dogs, the president, is like, I'm knocking on the door. I'm like, and he, he goes, hey, Peaks. He's like, yeah, we're, we're still in the meeting. And I go, well, why the hell did you tell me to come over here? I didn't pick up on it. Do you think they're trying to figure out what to do with you? Well, yeah, they were, they were discussing what was going to happen. So you got 13 to 15 outlaws, a locked door with a metal bar across it, three deadbolts, cinder block walls. Doesn't matter how tough you are, you're not going to get out of there, you know? Um, you got to learn to talk. And what you couldn't see is that 
I had video in my jacket. So if you watch the entire video, you'll see me cracking jokes and making them laugh like always. But when my head turns away from them, they'll be like, <laughs> they just cold faced. You see a dude in the back, looks like he's dancing to the song, but he's warming up. And uh, they carried me down in the basement. Did you think that was it? I don't know if I did. I knew it wasn't good. No shit. Yeah, like, <laughs> I'd much rather hear that story about an undercover and go, man, that sucks, than to be standing there naked going, this sucks. I joke about it now, but it's an oh crap moment, just like being in a shootout or anything traumatic. I forgot my middle name. Basically, I took my jacket off, I took my shirt off, I took my boots off. They told you to take all your clothes off. Yeah, and I dropped my drawers and pants around my ankles. I never took my socks or everything off after the nap, but I stood there. So if I'm gonna carry a wire, I should basically keep it in my sock. <laughs> I don't know, man. So what happened then? So I had audio and video in my jacket. The thing is, the surveillance could never get close enough to the clubhouse because of counter surveillance. So I was pretty much on my own. So Did they do surveillance outside the clubhouse? Yeah, and it's a small street. But I mean, it's like house, house, big black building. <laughs> it's painted black with outlaw shit all over it. Uh, you know, I, I somewhat passed the test. Um, I remember my middle name, I'm trying to talk. Yeah, because we're big on not vapor locking. And I didn't even realize I, I did a distraction technique by saying something to them. And that made them scream upstairs to ask the probate, what do you need it for the website? So I'm like, okay, now they're just running my name. But I'm looking at Clothesline, who's the enforcer. And out of that two year investigation, my closest relationship was Scott Town. My second closest relationship was Clothesline. So this is the guy stripping me in a basement at gunpoint. I didn't see plastic. I was looking for plastic. If I'd have seen plastic, I probably would have tried to fight. What'd you mean? Plastic on the floor? Is it gonna kill me? Yeah, I mean, you know, easy cleanup. I'm like, I'm going out anyway, I might as well start swinging. So Clothesline was your, like, one of your closest friends in that group? Yes, sir. What were you reading from him? Even though I'm saying something and he's saying something, what my face is saying is tell me I'm okay. And his face back to me was kind of like, you're okay. But he says, hey, we got a lot of stuff going on. Trust me, I've done all kinds of shit with you. Six to eight jobs, he's not wearing bracelets. I'm removing stolen stuff for him. You know, they killed somebody, they did a home invasion, all kinds of stuff like that, dope sales. He goes, trust me, if somebody accused me of being a fed, I'd probably smash him in the fucking mouth. And I looked at him and I said, well, I'm not happy. And he said, I wouldn't be either. Well, we finish and we think everything's good. Then he grabs my jacket and he says, uh, there's not anything in your jacket I don't need to find, right? Like some naked pictures of my old lady. And he's like, ha, ha, ha. And I go, because <laughs> it's in the jacket. And uh, do you think he was going to find it? Yeah, because he's kneading it with his hand and he's getting close. And uh, in the video, you hear me again. I don't know I'm doing it. It's a traumatic incident. You're having an oh shit moment. It's an adrenaline dump. You have auditory exclusion. Everything's going wah, wah, wah. Everything slows down. You got time dilation. Your eyes are going click, click, click. It might be five seconds, but it feels like it's five minutes. And uh, you hear me audibly sigh because I think I'm done and he's needing that jacket. And you literally hear me go, <sighs> I don't even know I'm doing it. And I'm like, here we go, you know. But he didn't find it. He looked right at it and didn't find it. And uh, I made it out. Did you ever discover what happened that you merited suddenly all this attention? Because they, through the Outlaw Nation, Outlaw Association Motorcycle Club, they passed it up to the, the head of the Outlaws at that point was Milwaukee Jack, and uh, he ordered them to check me. This was around the time, and you've been very honest about this, which I appreciate that you had a mental, physical breakdown. Probably within six months after that, yeah. Because I'd been going for three years at a pace. <laughs> I'm an idiot. 
a true workaholic. So, and I'm not saying I'm better than anybody. Uh, let's, let's get that out there. I, this is not a chest beating Scott Payne bitch show. You know, this is a, I found my threshold. I think your threshold changes every day. I think your comfort zone changes every day with working out. But for three years, I have been working uh, two different undercovers. I was running multiple cases, multiple sources, doing good work. And then, you know, oh, oh man, I had a family. Did I forget to say that? Right. You know, you come home and I'm beat. And what I didn't realize, and I, she just told me, we've had to dive back into our uh, conflicting times, which we don't want to do because we're so damn happy right now, you know? So we started kind of hashing back in. And she told me, my wife, when we were driving down, the, I was shutting her out. Like I would come back home and I didn't even want to be bothered. I just wanted to veg because I was working so hard. And she might have a question about bills or the family. And I'd be like, I don't, I don't even want to think right now. Right. But I was just shutting her off. And she was just trying to be supportive. And then you just broke. Yeah, 2007, Daytona Bike Week. I lied at the safeguard assessment because there's an open-ended sentence thing and it says the last time I relaxed was. But I'm sitting there doing the test and I'm on the, I'm on the laptop and I'm like, last time I relaxed, last time I relaxed, relaxed. I had no clue what I did to relax at that point. I didn't take days off anymore because my argument to management was, you can't tell me I can't go do an undercover if I excel in cases and sources. So if that meant me losing my days off, that's what I did, because I'm an idiot. And I applied the warrior mentality to everything in my life, and it doesn't work great when you apply it to everything. So I found myself in a hotel room by this time in 2007. But at that point, I'm a zombie. I've been going for three years at this pace, I'm drinking uh, as much coffee as you can, hydroxy cuts, rip fuel, whatever the heck you want to do. I'm on antihistamines, I'm on decongestants, I'm on inhalers. I'd get on a plane flight, get off and have a sinus infection. So I'm there and I've been out with the outlaws and the Mongols all night. I wake up the next morning, uh, nice little hotel right on the ocean, you know? And uh, it's one of those deals where you've been out all night and you wake up and you move and you can still hear the whiskey and eggs swishing in your belly. No, nobody's ever had that oh experience God. in this room, have we? So here I am going, I'm going to do some exercising. This is bull crap. I'm doing push-ups, sit-ups, burpees, mountain climbers, and I, I went to get up. I couldn't catch my breath. I had an anxiety attack. I start shutting down. My truck driver, who's an undercover, knocks on the door. I'm wrapped in a towel, just pouring sweat as white as the towel. And he's like, are you okay? And I go, I don't think so, man. So we're sitting out on the back porch looking at the ocean, and he goes, you know, Scott, I've been doing undercover for a long time. He goes, is it that you're anxious about the end of the case? Because that causes stress. And I'm like, he goes, how about the fact that you're getting ready to betray all these guys that they're your friend? How about them discovering who you are? Was this him helping? Yeah, right. So he goes through this litany of things. He goes, is it any of those? And I go, well, it is now, damn it. <laughs> I said, shit, you know. So what do I do? I take a nap. Cowboy up, man. I go back out. I'm out with the Mongols again. And. Once you break it all down and you go to therapy and everything, they'll tell you the cocktail that I made that morning prior to me working out is a cocktail for anxiety. An inhaler, hydroxy cut, the blackest, strongest coffee, whatever you can make, you're shooting it down. You're like, whoa, let's go. Hair follicles tingling, whiskey whisking in your belly. Okay, I got to say, you're actually making it sound a little attractive. Hey. <laughs> well, you could have had advantage of me if you'd have walked in the room that day. I'll tell you what, I couldn't have put up much of a fight. I went home. I'm going to say I probably slept close to 18 to 20 hours the first day. But through that week, uh, I slept over 16 hours a day, every day. And I was not depressed. I know what that feels like. I was not sick. I know what that feels like. 
I was that damn tired. Most people would, would be like, that's it, I'm done, I'm washing out at that point. Oh, not this smart man. <laughs> what was the family feeling about, I mean, you've got two daughters, you've got a wife. What drove you to get back into it? It sounds like this was a great big fucking warning signal. Yeah, well, there's a mandatory timeout phase. I called Safeguard that Friday. Uh, one of the psychologists is a good friend of mine, Meredith Krause. She helped pilot the Safeguard program for Canada. I trusted her enough to call her, and it was Friday at like 6.30, and I said, I think I'm crashing. So they came down and did an on-site, interviewed my wife, put me through the whole gamut, and uh, I was listed as DNR. And if you get DNR, that means they do not recommend you to continue undercover work. So I finished the outlaw case on the phone, setting up some more deals for a couple of months, and then they took it down. I was a wreck, man. You get some mandatory six months off, um, and then you can say you're interested in going active again, and, and I was. I, I, mean, I love undercover work. I know without a shadow of a doubt that one of my reasons uh, being on this planet was to do undercover. Is that it? Is it something that can be trained? Can you actually take somebody and train them to be undercover, or do you think they just, it's a natural thing that you can identify and they just, people have just got it or not? So I think you can be trained, and this is why. Going back to what undercover is, this is not acting school. It's not acting school. Because if you go deep undercover, don't get me wrong, if I'm going out here and I'm gonna make three quick buys and we're gonna hit you with a search warrant, I can lie. I can come up, I'm getting ready to pick up my kids. Uh, my ex-old lady's got them, they're gonna smell this, I can't do it, I got a piss test tomorrow. Three buys you can do it, but deep undercover, if you're pretending to be something that's completely different than what you are for a long period of time, one or two things is gonna happen. You're either gonna slip up or you're gonna become it. So you gotta be careful. So I'm always Scott. I'm always me. I may or may not be married. I may or may not have kids. I may or may not play college ball. I may or may not be a musician, but I still got tats. You know I work out, and probably you're gonna know I ride motorcycles. You used to meet with your team and contact officer every two weeks. Is that enough? Is it enough to keep you grounded? No, no, it depends on what you're doing, and it depends on who your contact agent is. Now, if I'm just going and doing a quick thing and I'm coming back, but if I'm out there, you know, drinking goat's blood and you know, burning Bibles that don't burn, by the way. That's a pretty cool story. You know, yeah, it's good to have somebody. But I'm going to tell you what happened after I crashed. I didn't just get let back in. I had to show them. And I mean, I documented it. These are the steps that I've taken in my life to prevent this from happening again. I had tripwires set up. I had accountability buddies set up. People that are, some of them are in this room. And even during the base case, they'd be like, Scott, go the hell home. And I go, I got you. And I am, I just got to pop in this one thing, but you're right, I'm taking the next two days off. I, I learned how to relax again. I learned how to take care of myself. But in this job, I mean, you may go seven days with no sleep. It's just that at the end of those seven days, go relax, <laughs> reboot. No case is worth losing your family over, losing yourself over. Well, that's the thing. I mean, we talked about, we talked about getting sucked into the whole system. Can you get out? Is it easy to get out? Is it easy to readjust? And I mean, I say readjust, I mean, I'd use that term very liberally because I yeah. can know you, you know, but as much as you can readjust. It, it was, and it is, still involved with law enforcement. I still travel the country teaching. I still meet new people. I still engage. And you've seen me at a bar. I still have fun. I like messing with people. You drink everybody under the table. No, it's not a thing to be proud of. Law enforcement, number one for what? What are we number one for? Alcoholism, suicide, and divorce. Sign up. 
Yeah, you make it sound really sexy. That's going to help. Oh, wait, did she say that Moonshine Company was going to be here tomorrow? Yeah, we're not, we're not going through a recruitment crisis, so you're just helping fabulously there. You have to take care of yourself. And, uh, and there's still those stereotypical stories where you're in a department and you're a psychologist. You go tell the psychologist, now you get put on timeout. Now you don't want to talk to that psychologist. Just know you got somebody. You got to have somebody to talk to. The 30th of June, 2020, in Knox County, Tennessee, was declared Scott Payne Day. Two things about that. First of all, why wasn't it Scott Payne Bitch Day? I, I, I'm not sure the mayor wanted to put that on the, you know. But secondly, when that day came around, I mean, firstly, congratulations. That's absolutely awesome. What was your feeling? Relief, confusion, elation? Uh, I almost cried on that one. Yeah. Uh, so Glenn Jacobs, the wrestler, WWE Kane is a buddy of mine. So yeah, it was pretty awesome. You're out now because your photograph's been in Rolling Stone magazine and all that kind of stuff. Did, it feel, did that day feel like the kind of an end of an era for you? That's a good question. I don't look at it like that. I'll tell you what happened. After the base case, we took it down in January of COVID year and we're out drinking. And I don't remember what the conversation was, but I just remember it hit me like a brick in the face. I'm like, I'm satisfied with my career. Man, I have had a good run as a case agent. I've had a good run as an undercover. I've had a good run as a trainer. And I'm like, it's time. Pretty happy. Yeah. All right. I think we're going to call it that. Hey, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much for this little adventure sitting in to see this recording, spend some time listening to both of us. Ladies and gentlemen, Scott Payne. Thank you. This has been episode 55 of Reducing Crime, recorded in Nashville, Tennessee, in August 2022. Given Scott's also a musician, I thought you'd like to listen to his cover of the Sam Cooke classic, Bring It On Home To Me. If you've heard it before, you may just have been at a Klan rally. If you ever change your mind about leaving, leaving me behind. Visit reducingcrime.com slash podcast for transcripts and details of every episode. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore reducing crime. But you won't need that if you simply subscribe or follow at SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or pretty much anywhere you get your podding pleasure. Be safe and best of luck. <laughs>